Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Latitude Podcast. I'm your host. My name is Lamont. This episode is with Shannon McLaughlin. Shannon is the founder of Ubuntu Barber and inventor of its popular baby carrier product. This should ring a bell. Ubuntu Barber shot to public prominence in 2019 when it emerged that Woolworths had brazenly copied her baby carrier design and placed it on the rack for sale. But this podcast isn't about that, though of course it comes up as a central cog in both Shannon and Ubuntu Barber's journeys. Not to dump on Woolworths at all, in fact. As far as this incident goes, Woolworths ultimately addressed the situation generally in line with what you would expect from a reasonable corporate citizen. This podcast is about Shannon's incredibly insightful entrepreneurial journey. I'm recording this a day after we spoke, and for just over 24 hours now, I haven't been able to stop thinking about how much I learned from her journey. This conversation follows Ubuntu Barber from its humble beginnings in 2015 to its heights just after the Woolies spectacle in 2019 and its subsequent somewhat self-inflicted lows post-COVID. It also covers its recent restructure and revival into a well-positioned and saleable brand. Shannon is the quintessential creative entrepreneur. With her own hands and a bit of help, she made something she really needed to improve her life. She turned it into a business to help others. She fought injustice off a wave of public support to turn the Woolies hype into an opportunity. She shot for the moon as the success got away from her. She knuckled down and mucked in to save the brand she almost lost. And she turned it around to get it ready to sell. And that's where she is today. The story is raw in places, funny in places, sad in places, and uplifting in places. Overall, it is a visceral education into the life of an entrepreneur. If you have respect for, or if you are inspired by entrepreneurial character, or if you are one, and you want an hour-long crash course in some of what it takes to get through the full life cycle, tune in. Indeed, if you are an investor that is excited about a highly rated local brand and looking to get into the space, your ears might also prick up. Buntu Baba is for sale. And so now I bring you Shannon McLaughlin. Shannon McLaughlin, welcome to the Latitude Podcast. Thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah, it's great to have you here. You're the entrepreneur behind Ubuntu Barber and the infamous slash famous baby carrier Woolworths incident thing. But I'm sure we'll cover that as part of the, the pod. But before we get there, maybe like just tell us a little bit about how you come to this or maybe just tell us a little bit how Ubuntu Baba got started. Your client is a mom. I love that. But yeah, you're a you're a successful South African entrepreneur. How did you how did you get started? Yeah, so it was in the process of me becoming a mom. You know, when I was pregnant, I didn't really have any knowledge of baby carriers. Or, you know, I knew the basics that you needed, mm. and then. My little boy came around and I was kind of faced with all the things you're faced with in motherhood, one of them being getting your baby to sleep. And he wasn't 
very keen on that idea unless he was on me. And so the only way that I could get him to sleep was by like rocking him and jumping, bouncing around, holding him in my arms, lying on the couch. But it kind of meant that I was stuck. <laughs> at a Velcro baby, you know, I couldn't really do anything. Yeah. And he also had colic and yeah, just a lot of struggles in those first few weeks. And then I had a friend come around and she brought with her this product called the Stretchy Wrap. Yes. Which is like this long piece of fabric that you kind of wrap on you and then your baby's meant to go to sleep and all your problems are solved. I remember them. They look so cool. Mm, yeah. yeah, and they look they look lovely. But I was like, wow, this looks like a mission. And I had tried a lot of things at that point to try and get my son to sleep, but I would have tried anything. And the packaging was like this happy mom. And I was like, okay, I'm going to give this a go. And yeah, the first day I tried it, I got it and he, I put him in it and he went to sleep and he slept on me for three hours. Mm. And it was the longest sleep he had had since he was born. <laughs> and I was like, mm. oh my God, why did they not give me this when I left the hospital? Yeah. <laughs> we have a gap here. So that's kind of what sparked my interest into baby wearing. And then, yeah, I mean, my intention was just to kind of ease back into life as a web designer and and then I started like he started growing and getting too big for the stretchy wrap. I started going out. I was like, okay, I'll just go buy a baby carrier. But I just couldn't find anything that came close to the comfort of the stretchy wrap and how easy that was and how much he loved it, how comfortable it was for me. Yes. Uh, and I saw that that had a very short lifespan. And I think that's what sparked the idea for me. I was like, well, there must be other moms that are needing to live their life again. Yes. And like a pram just seems like you know quite bulky and annoying. I feel like I'm going everywhere with a trolley, you know? Yeah. And yeah, I like to feel free and being able to live my life. So yeah, there were other baby carriers and there still are, but nothing that came close to it. And with my dad being in manufacturing, he does hiking gear and backpacks, you know, it kind of just, it was the perfect scenario for me to explore the idea of like, hang on, maybe if we combine this stretchy wrap idea with this idea of a buckled carrier, how can I make this work? Yeah. So that's where kind of the idea was born. I love it. Like I'm quite, I'm keen to know, like what was the key thing that set it apart? Because there were other baby carriers at mm. the time. But it's, it's like, I mean, you and I are friends and I've known your, the Ubuntu Balba past for some time. So I know a little bit about your journey, but how you came into it is so interesting. And I, it's a kind of a intellectual hobby is to, is to study what's, the science behind why, how an idea comes to form. And what is so interesting is that often, like, innovation comes right at the edges of disciplines. So you kind of, it's awesome that you, you experience the problem directly, and so it's so visceral, so you wanted to make something to solve your own problem. But how did you, like, the psychological, I guess, courage to actually think, okay, I can design. Did you have design experience before? Like what was your, mm. <laughs> like, what are your credentials to suddenly just design a piece of apparel for, for mm. mothers and babies? Yeah, so yeah, I think it's interesting because at the point of when I was like, I have this idea, it wasn't yet like a business idea. It was like, okay, my dad works in a factory with buckles and sewing machines and fabric I can't find one and I've already spent, you know, 5,000 rand now on six different baby carriers. Mm. And I need to be able to live my life. So, 
like, hi, dad, <laughs> I need to solve a problem for myself, you know. Yes. So there, there's not much courage in that part. It's more just like it was more desperation at that point that okay. I needed my baby to continue sleeping. Yes. And I had found a solution which made him sleep on me, got him to into such a deep sleep as well that I could actually take him off me and put him in a cot to sleep for another two hours. Whereas anything else I tried, rocking him in my arms and putting him down, he would just wake up. Mm. So it was really a sense of desperation for myself. And then I think when my dad saw it and we sat down and looked at it, then there was like an ounce of excitement. Like, okay, well, if we do get this right, mm. just being an entrepreneur my whole life, I was like, well, then maybe I can actually put a physical product into the world, you know? Yes. So that's kind of, yeah, I think how the how the... The journey went for me. So where did that little switch happen? Where did it, at what point did you realize, oh, I've solved my own problem. This could be a business. What like, mm. what was the sort of catalyst for that shift? I think also I never like dreamt it to be like, I'm so used to freelance life, you know, mm. where it's like one client, one website, you know. And so, yeah, I mean, it was nine years ago and I was in a completely different mindset and also dealing with like heavy postpartum depression. So it was just almost a distraction for me, you know. Um, as soon as I had other people trying on, you know, I had a lot of prototypes and like unfinished products where there wasn't even a waistband yet and it was just like a piece of fabric tied around the waist. We were trying to get the body of the carrier right for the baby to sit in it. And testing that out and then getting it right with my son and then going, okay, let me go to the mom group that I go to on Mondays and bring it with. And like, mm. you know, ask someone with a different body shape or a bigger baby or a smaller baby to try this and see what they think. Yes. And that's where you like get feedback. And I was like, oh, this is so cool. And they were like, oh my God, if you make one, I want one, please. I want to be the first one, you know. Yeah. yeah. Huh. If you look back at your whole I mean, you've got two babies now, mm -mm. both 10. No, one baby. One, oh, you're one business, about, one oh, baby. Okay. Yeah. okay <laughs> <laughs> Only one child. <laughs> <laughs> no, I both meant nine. <laughs> <laughs> somewhat metaphorically. Okay. Uh, you've got two babies now that are very similar age, and in a sense, their lives are intertwined, if you've, as you've just yeah. explained that we'll get to where you are in your journey now and 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 the moving in in stepping into more of motherhood i guess a bit later but the business baby what was your it's in that whole journey that 10 years where has your most where have you felt the most fulfillment the most satisfaction mm. Definitely seeing other moms wearing the product. Like that's to, to today, like my favorite thing. Going on Instagram, we get tagged every single day in stories. Like for the last seven years, I would say every day we tagged. You know, in the And is that still going on? It's still getting yeah. like daily tags and daily, stuff? Daily, yeah. I mean, Amazing. yeah. So that's really rewarding to see that these moms are getting their babies to sleep and you see, I mean, moms post photos of them doing their jobs, like taking, you know, photographers. Moms are got their baby sleeping on them and they're doing a photo shoot with another family. Okay. Or they're painting. 
I mean, there was one of a, a lady who was in church and she had her baby asleep on her and she's on the stage talking to the church. Mm. So, you know, usually you see the moms sitting at the back of the church and as soon as the baby cries, they run out, you know. Mm. So there's so many scenarios where a mom can, or even a dad, can continue their life with baby in tow. And yeah, I mean, for me, as soon as I actually had my own baby carrier that I had designed, I was like, I just felt so great. Like I knew how it worked properly and I could do anything. I mean, I remember even when I still had the stretchy wrap, Leo was nine weeks old. I mean, I was mentally a complete mess, but there was a, a bri and I was like, that's it, I'm going to this one. And I brought him with and I put him in the wrap and we were there till 11 o'clock at night and he was on me asleep and the music was on and people were, you know, making a noise and everyone was like, wow, he's so calm. I was like, no, 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 <laughs> this is the magic. It's this piece of fabric, yeah. you know? And I just was like, yeah, it provided me so much freedom. So I think that's, yeah, for me, I love, you know, if I walk along the prom or wherever I go, I'm bound to see someone wearing it, you know? Mm. And that's always for me. I'm like, oh, yes, first one for the day. <laughs> so yeah. it's, it's lovely. What is such a cool story, like a product for a baby, for a mom, and also your sense of satisfaction so visceral, like you see people use it and they tag you and you know mm. that they feel the same way you felt when you designed it. Yeah, in the in the beginning stages, I used to get so excited. Like me and my friends, I mean, even Olivia, a friend of ours, she was our photographer and for a period and we'd be, you know, walking around the mall or wherever and we'd see a mom and we'd have to run up to her and say, hi, oh my God, this is our business, we've done this, you know, mm. and it would be exciting. I don't do that anymore because I've had a few experiences where people are like, what the hell, weirdo, get <laughs> 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 away from my baby. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, um, the world's sort of changed a little yeah. bit. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> gotta be careful. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. Those are cool stories. I mean, I, I reflect a lot on, on, for myself, like what keeps me going. And not a lot of people, I mean, people do know this, but it's not like common knowledge. Like I'm having a professionally difficult time at the moment. Like mm, there's, there's more problems than there are these moments of satisfaction. And I was quite taken by a Elon Musk meme, which I saw the other day, and I'm normally not at all taken by Elon Musk's memes, <laughs> I must be honest. But I, he says that running a business is very, very hard. And I think he kind of maybe overdoes it a little bit because it's not my direct experience. But when the times are tough, it's just a sea of problems and the and and I, I'm sort of paraphrasing what he said. He said it's actually really, really hard. There are fun times, but most of the time it's such a uncertain space with high levels of complexity. So it's bound to just have endless challenges and problems that you have to solve. And all of the biggest ones filter through to the CEO or to the head or to the founder. And so actually most of the time you're spending your time not on the thing you want to spend your time on. So Ubuntu Baba is 10. And yeah, I mean, you. It, there can't be many businesses where the sense of fulfillment that you've just described is so visceral, like another mom, another baby, mm. and you were in that same position. Has it been 
you know, not to... Overall, has it been worth it? A hundred percent. Okay. Yeah, definitely. But talk us through some of the tough times. Yeah, I mean, I can definitely resonate with, you know, the bigger problems falling on the founder, falling on the person who's in charge. You know, for me, that it was quite a roller coaster. I think the first few years, we really, like in my recollection, <laughs> I don't feel like there were any big problems really until the whole Woolly story dropped. Okay. That was my first one of many. <laughs> and so I didn't really know how to deal with it. I had been, you know, since I had my son and and I experienced such deep postpartum depression, that was like a bit of a catalyst for my healing journey and everything that I put into like, you know, not just completely falling off the map. And so I had done a lot of work leading up to what happened with Willies, which I think was really in my favor because I'm, you know, I'm very much, you know, when people go into survival, it's fight, flight, freeze or appease and I'm a fighter. Mm. So I've got to be very careful <laughs> when I get into these kind of situations. And the timing was just so good. I had just completed like a whole year Kundalini meditation course and then this happened. Okay. And so it couldn't have happened at a better time for me to deal with like a problem that was about to like take my business down. You were equipped, yeah. Yeah. And then after that, there was a year that happened and then COVID hit. And I think that, so I didn't really see Woolies as a problem so much as just something to kind of, we needed to work through. And we really saw it from the beginning as a opportunity more. Before we get to the Willies thing, like that happened in 2019, 20s? I think it was, tw yeah, beginning of 2019. Yeah, because 2020 was the beginning of 2020, it was COVID. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So the Willies thing happened then. But so how old was the business before that? You'd been going a few years already. Well, we launched in 2015. Okay. And that was 2019, exactly four years. Okay. Yeah. What were your ambitions for the business before mm. the big event with Woolies? Yeah, I know. I was very focused. I'm uh, quite obsessed with Sarah Blakely from Spanx. Mm. She's like my, you know, at that point was definitely my model for what I wanted to do. Um, Please enlighten me. What is Spanx? Spanx are, so she created, you know, when women want to look skinny under their clothes. <laughs> And it yes. like squeezes everything together yes. and okay. your butt looks tight and your stomach is flat. She created that. Okay. And she's got a legendary story. And she actually just sold the business for I don't even know how much. But she was always like the 100% shareholder. And she just went completely against the grain. Okay. And I just love her. And yeah, I mean, that was the really the vision is I wanted to be the next Spanx. Okay, cool. Yeah, we, I mean, me and the girls that I had on the team were very like vision orientated and we would like, you know, make jokes about the big party when they like put the red carpet down for us and yes. sold millions of baby carriers or whatever. <laughs> and yeah, so that was kind of the vision. It was always that. And we just happily kind of went along our way until, <laughs> until that happened. So it was, it was quite a... We we were you know also I think I've I've never been in the in the entrepreneurial space where it's like 
let's build a business. It was always freelancing, you know. So mm. we were, it was, it was, I was in a different category of entrepreneur, I think, before the Woolies thing. Mm. So everything, I didn't see big, I didn't know, I didn't refer to Woolies as a corporate. You know, I never heard the term corporate bully in my life. Okay, <laughs> yeah. That's so interesting. So you fell into the entrepreneurship thing and I, I remember looking back, I think it was a naive comment, but Kino Cummings had me on his show during the whole Woolies song to talk about how entrepreneurs should be thinking about intellectual property. And I remember remember having you in mind, obviously, because it was the saga at the time. And I remember thinking, because I know quite a bit about what one should look out for in that space. But years have gone by and I know more now about what entrepreneurs face, how they get into it and what's actually going on on the day-to-day basis. So if you don't have something that is easily and obviously patentable or protectable through copyright, a lot of the time, how do you protect your idea or design or your your the value that you're building in innovation is something that is very, very difficult to protect. And I think, so reflecting back on that conversation with Kino, I was maybe harsh on entrepreneurs that are not thinking about it all the time. But now I reflect thinking that comment is so naive because so many entrepreneurs get into entrepreneurship through a route of not necessarily knowing that stuff, not being formally trained in it, also not developing a a product that is is obviously protectable in that kind of way. I was interested to know, before the Woolies thing happened, had you guys had discussions about intellectual property, protecting your design? Had it come up at all or not? Not, not at all. Not at all. Okay. I didn't know what intellectual property was. If you had told me what that is, I would have thought it was the property industry. Okay. Literally. Yeah. Like, so wow. yeah, I got a lot of a lot of hate around how stupid I was, <laughs> oh. and and you know now it's in, it was interesting because it's like you know I think people assume entrepreneurs know that they're entrepreneurs and that they should have these things in place. But mm. what's the biggest problem in South Africa is like we've got all these people with all these great ideas and you know all these investors with all this money and there's just no one is actually like matching up, but. Well, what is the school system doing to support entrepreneurs? We, I mean, should we not have been taught about entrepreneurship on entrepreneur days and what intellectual property is, you know? Yeah. And there's, there's so much there for me that I don't feel in any way stupid just because someone said, oh, well, it was your fault. Like, looking back now, I learned so much lessons and it's great like that I can share. Like, well, I could have registered my design within the first six months. That would have at least put one barrier to entry for them. Yes. I could have not named it stage one and stage two, which are completely non-descriptive and can be used in every single industry. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's like so many things I could have done better and it wouldn't have been that expensive actually. Yes. You don't have to go the full, mo- <laughs> full Monty <laughs> and like do the whole patent and this and that and spend 50,000 rand on protecting it. You can do the very basics, you know. Yes. And I just didn't know about that because I've just never come into my world, you know. And then it's obviously too late when it happens. But in hindsight, it was great. I mean, I got six months after it had happened, there was one teacher in a high school somewhere that made intellectual property a project. And there was kids, three kids grouped together and did a project on Ubuntu Baba. And they mm. 
sent it to me and wanted me to answer some questions for them. Like, how cool. Yeah, that is amazing. So I think that it's cool to get into the story because it actually, in the end, worked out well for you. And I think, and I'm just chatting to you and catching up on this, I think that has to do with your character and how you handle those difficult situations, which we'll get into, that that fightiness that's mm. in you. So, Willie's, do you think that if you had had those thoughts specifically related to your design, do you think if you had had those thoughts and you took those steps that it would not have happened? Oh, good question. If I had registered the design and named it with with trademarkable names and, and actually trademarked that, I think it would have made it a lot harder for them. Yes. I don't know if it wouldn't have happened. Yeah. I don't, I don't think they realized how big we were, in inverted commas, big. Because for me, you know, by, by that point we had had 10,000 people in South Africa buy our baby carrier and be very attached to it because it got their baby to sleep. Mm. And, you know, it might, be di- it might be different for like a hat or something else. But that emotional thing that it's really solved a problem for a mom makes her like... You know, moms will stand up for something they believe in. Yes. Okay, so that's probably what got you, it aided you in getting that sort of community-based support. Yeah. eventually made it work out for you. And we can get into the details of that in a moment. But prepping for this podcast this morning, I was actually, someone here at the studio was asking me who's coming in. I mentioned it was you and Ubuntu Baba. And I just said to them, do you know, I didn't explain, and it's been a few years. I said, do you know who that is? And he was like, Ah, isn't that one of the Woolies scandal things? It's still like, and this is a guy, right? He's not, he mm. didn't buy your product. Maybe his wife has or something, but it's, it's interesting. Like it, it was, it be, it's something that became top of mind. And I think that it's had like that and a couple of other things that happened. Like there was the guy with the ginger beer. I think mm. he was after you. No, he was before. Oh, was he? Mm. Yeah. So there was a bit of a theme and a bad time and maybe there was a cultural thing going on in on then in corporate SA. But so how did it turn out? I mean, you got a, you got a lot of free publicity as a result mm. of that thing. But I mean, why don't you describe what the time was like for you emotionally, leading into it, getting out of it, how you how you managed to get a result, what that result was and mm. yeah. Look, I don't think it was very difficult to go viral if with the story I had and the company that did it. The fact that your friend knew it about the story this morning has nothing to do with me. It has all to do with the media. And how they love to jump on a news cycle. I mean, my friend was at the airport the next morning and it was literally on this massive screen as a thing. Like, I was like, what is happening? Like, why do people hate Woolies so much? <laughs> like, at that point, I don't know. Did you, you can... initiate that response? Or, uh... No, like, no, we put out one blog post and one newsletter. That's oh, what wow. we did. And then... It was insane. I mean, it was just insane how the media jumped on it. So the media once <laughs> there was people that were out to get. <laughs> they want blood. <laughs> they okay. wanted blood, yeah. And and uh, there was definitely some other, you know, I don't know who owns newspapers and all that kind of stuff, but there was definitely some other, mm. you know, undertones going on. And I just kind of got lucky in that way. I'm sorry, I forgot your question. How did you feel, oh, how did I feel? When, they, when they took your baby yeah. in the beginning then? How yeah. did you feel? 
emotionally it was okay so i think the way it went was first anger and how dare they mm. and like injustice mm. and you know it was a little bit underhanded wasn't it because they had been in touch with you no, about never never made contact with me ever oh no. i thought there was something about a buyer yeah that's what the news said oh wow it's not no i never heard of them and well not i mean i've go shopping there but i'd never i didn't even know who the players were that i had to speak to Oh my goodness. No. So there's so much of that stuff that came out in the press was a made up story. Well, I was also African at one point. Okay. Yeah, there was there was, you know, I was a black woman who owned a company. I mean, there were so many stories. Oh, uh, cuz that gives it extra spin. Yeah. <sighs> anyway, but yeah, um huh. It was yeah, it was there was a lot of anger obviously and then kind of calmed myself down. I was like, "Hang on, this is an opportunity. Like this is actually such an opportunity. This is a gift." Mm. Like we got to really use this wisely and how can we show them that this is actually not okay, you know? Um and that's when I think, you know, the me having a newsletter and as an entrepreneur knowing like this is the well as a bootstrapping entrepreneur who kind of knew nothing about how business should be structured and it just organically grown it was like, well I've got a newsletter, I've got 10,000 customers, I've got uh, 25 brand ambassadors. let's group them all together let's come up with a strategy here you know and so mm. we decided to launch the blog post at 5 p.m. so that there was 12 hours before any lawyers could answer their phones again we asked all the brand ambassadors to share it okay it was a whole thing you know and we popped a bottle of champagne after so it was like this whole thing oh uh, nice how did you know you were right and well that was pretty easy okay i don't even think we need to discuss that i mean someone comes into your house and steals something from you Yeah. It's wrong. <laughs> yeah. A friend went into Woods and saw a stage one carrier for sale. Okay. For 500 rand and ours was like 1500 rand and it was the same color and she took a photo and sent it to me. Okay. She was like, "Have you seen this?" That <laughs> <laughs> was my pattern. Okay. So, yeah, but I mean to get back to the rare of emotions, it was there, there was that first and then there was this excitement okay, opportunity. And then the next morning waking up and just the first, I mean I was on the 7 a.m. radio show immediately with Bruce Woodfield. Wow. And it didn't stop there was six interviews that day. We had to close the shop because the TV cameras rocked up. I mean it was harassment. Mm. It was complete harassment. My son was starting school the next in the next two days for the first time. Huh. He was five I think five years old. Mm. And that was like my focus and it just my I had to leave my phone off. I couldn't go on WhatsApp. It was insane. And yeah, then I then I got scared. Then I was like, "Oh shit. Okay. What have I done?" <laughs> so what scared you? What were you worried about? At the level of public uh attention. Okay. And not knowing what the hell I was talking about because I didn't even know what intellectual property was. Yeah. Okay. Having chatted to a lawyer who said, "Well, you don't have any money, so we can't take them to courts. This is my suggestion." And I was like, "Oh, okay. Fine. We'll do that." Okay. And then it actually worked and we were like, "Oh shit." And it just was quite scary, you know, like people mm. were talking to me on radio shows asking me saying words I hadn't heard before and yeah, it was just very very overwhelming at that point. So yeah, and then there was a lot of angry people that were telling me what I should do. There was a lot of lawyers wanting to be my lawyer for free and take them to court. There's just so much nonsense going on around it. It's yes. such actually such a simple issue that I just needed to speak to the right person in Woolworths. <laughs> yes. And you got there eventually. Eventually, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What happened? What is what was the outcome? 
the outcome was great. I mean, at the end of it, they all the baby carriers that were pulled from the shelves got donated to a charitable cause, which was amazing. Mm. And I think they did definitely learn a big lesson, you mm. know, in it. And yeah, and a big portion of the profits went to creating an intellectual property course that was mm. rolled out. So yeah, I definitely was happy with the result. And you and Ubuntu Baba got huge publicity as a result of that thing. Yeah, yeah, we did. Did you have moments there where it was hard to battle through, where you were going to give it up? Or did the whole time, did you see it as an opportunity? I think it's just, a, it's amazing strength of character that you, you yeah. saw it as an opportunity and went for it. Well, yeah, it was never anything to give up. It was like, you guys are wrong. It was so black and white for me. Mm, I was okay. like, you don't get to buy someone's product, copy it, send it to China, make it and sell it here. Like, what the actual? Mm, like, I was yeah. just like, this is so simple. Mm. Like, it, yeah, it wasn't complicated. But I, it took months to close. I mean, it only closed up in September. It happened in January. Yes. So it was very long, drawn out, difficult process. I mean, a lot of reading and understanding lawyers' letters and getting angry and just getting over it. A lot of people around me obviously noticing my mental state and saying, just let it go. Like, mm. And I was like, no, like I want to close. I need closure on this, you know. Mm. But yeah, I mean, I, in the process of it, the best part of it is I just met the most incredible humans and made like best friends with people that I had never had access to or didn't even know existed before. Yeah. You know, people tweeted something and like one of my friends phoned and she's like, oh my God, Manus Brodrick tweeted you and said he's supporting you. I'm like, okay, that's cool. Who the hell is that? <laughs> like I had no clue who all these big players were at that yeah. time, you know. Yeah, she's I don't like, know who that is. She was you. like, you must phone him. He was one of the investors on Shark Tank. Oh, wow. Okay. He's now one of my very best friends. Oh, cool. I mean, and so there were all these funny things that happened and he had actually parked his car outside one of the willies and wrote, stop killing SMEs on the windscreen. Mm. And then his friend who was in some radio station took a photo and then that went viral. <laughs> so there was this all these people supporting me that I didn't didn't even know and they were just standing up for entrepreneurs, you yeah. know. And That's I just cool. kind of fell into that category. So... You know, the next week after it happened, I was on a stage in Joburg. I'd never even been to Joburg. I mean, yeah. I'm such a Cape Town girl. Yes. Speaking to 600 entrepreneurs about my experience, <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was pretty intense. <laughs> that is intense. Oh, it's very cool. So it came, I mean, it brought opportunities. Did it catalyze the business into a new space? Definitely. After that? Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Okay. I mean, I lawyered up properly. I trademarked it, everything I could trademark. <laughs> yeah. Everything. <laughs> Okay. And yeah. yeah, it definitely put me in a different space. I viewed my business differently. I took a lot more responsibility, I think. Yes. And ownership of, okay, I'm actually a founder of a business. There's people that are relying on me here, like, you know, kind of, yeah, it definitely catapulted me into that space. And then when it was very good preparation for the next year, which was, you know, you were talking about the problems, the big problems that business owners have to face and the next year was obviously COVID and I had mm. to deal with a lot of big stuff like having a shop that was a meeting space and it had been stuck in a contract there and mm. deciding what to do with that. You know, just, just kind of navigating all, all, all of that, having one staff, I had four staff members at that point, one of them 
she couldn't cope and she just went into this like state of depression and the other one actually got COVID and was landed up in the CTICC. She nearly died. Oh, so, you know, all these things and everybody was dealing with this, obviously. Yes. It wasn't unique to me, but I just think I was able to kind of navigate it a little better from the experience of the year before. Yeah. Had that been my first rodeo with like trying to act from a space of survival and also, you know, we had such a good year from all the publicity we had a lot of money in the bank to make decisions with. Yeah. So we could pivot, you know, where I think a lot of other people couldn't. We were like, okay, what yeah. are we going to do? Mm. We don't have the physical space. Was That shop was like a big part of the business. So hmm. we didn't have that anymore. And events were a big part of what we did. Mm. Yeah. Where are, you, where are you now and where is Ubuntu Baba now? Mm. Very different space. I actually wrote a, an article a few months ago saying like if you had to timestamp the business at year two, year four, year six, year eight and look at it, they were all very, very different. It's just changed so much. Mm. I think as an entrepreneur for me, I'm very much like if I'm going to be an entrepreneur, it's because I want a lifestyle of freedom and I want to be happy. That's my kind of outlook as to being an entrepreneur. Otherwise, I might as well go get a job, you know? Yeah. So that's okay. why I think my business has changed so much because I've changed so much and I've had to let the business adapt to kind of match me. Yeah, because, I mean, earlier on in the conversation, you said there was one point where you thought you were going to be the Spanx lady. Mm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I had a hundred members, like, working for me, people working for me. No, now I have none. Yeah. Zero. Okay. So your ambitions have changed. So a lot has changed. I mean, when if we go back to the Woolies thing, I was part of the manufacturing business and now I'm not. I split from that after the Woolies thing and I became a brand that bought a manufactured product okay. from, from a manufacturer. So I just owned the brand, Yes, which is where I'm at today. I had a team and then, yeah, I went through a bit of a, you know, had had the Woolies thing, which gave me, I think, a lot of confidence and also definitely a bit of ego because I was the woolly slayer and, you know, you get a lot of attention and mm, um, interesting, yeah. that definitely uh, gave me a part, a piece of personality that I didn't really need um, and had to deal with. And and then having money in the bank for the first time in my entire life <laughs> and then COVID happening and then going, wow, what shall we do with all this money? Okay, hire people, advertise online, like basically blow it all. Okay. Um, uh, stock up for all our massive dreams and visions that we haven't actually rolled out and tested you know huh. and and oh everyone says you have to work on your business and not in it let me hire someone to run it and not be involved <laughs> 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 so yeah a lot has changed because i made a lot of mistakes in the last three years huh. and a lot of learning that's so interesting so you you're on a bit of a high you yeah, know, cash in the bank, Woolies Slayer. I mean, our staff parties went from <laughs> zero to hero very quickly. Okay, so you'd become Spanx Lady in your mind. Yeah, really, totally. Yeah, cool. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's great. I've done. I've made that mistake as well. So it's yeah. Not, yeah. Okay, so sure, you're being um, quite open and vulnerable here. Thank you. So you made some big strategic errors after that. Yeah. You were lifted to that new platform. For sure. Yeah. And. Yeah. And I'd also decided, and I'm still on that path, is that I feel like it's a very sellable brand mm. with the right owner. I feel like as a founder, I've outgrown, or the brand has outgrown me, and so I'm not doing it justice anymore. Mm. And 
so yeah, last year was definitely a very interesting year. You know, I very, very, very much believe in having a coach and as an entrepreneur. And I'd, I'd gotten to the point where I realized I'm now a business owner with a team. I'm not a little entrepreneur anymore. And having coaching kind of unclouded a lot of the decisions I'd made. I'd seen like, okay, this has all been made from like a very emotional point. And and I, I had to go from blaming everybody to kind of just taking responsibility to like, okay, I've screwed this up. Yes. And so you, you shot for the stars and didn't reach. How close did you come to losing it? Very close. Okay. Yeah, incredibly close. Okay. Basically what happened was by the end of last year, I started to see, you know, and now I had actually learned how to use a spreadsheet to forecast because, I mean, I still think there's such a gap for like, you know, the software for entrepreneurs. I mean, we founders do not know how to work with money. We absolutely suck. Mm. And to tell me to forecast something is just go into complete frazzle state. It's very hard for me to look at a spreadsheet. Sure. Okay. But now I actually had a working version of one that made sense. And I was like, oh, dear, this is a problem. I've now got five people employed, four people actually at that point. And I've got eight months of if everything carries on like it is in this kind of decline in people's wallets and incline in the price of hemp landing in South Africa, which seems to be a constant every three, four months, mm. this is heading for disaster. And so it kind of took December last year to just sit with that and be like, where's my life at? What do I actually want to do with my life? Yeah, and I just realized I wasn't coping being a business owner. I'm not coping managing a team. It's really not what I want to do. And I just had landed there, you know. And yes. and I just, yeah, so it was terrible, <laughs> terrible to have to deal with. But yeah, in uh, January, the my poor team came back with me saying, you've got two more months to work. And then okay. I have to restructure this whole business to make it work for one. And instead of having a little mini warehouse where we ship from and handwrite notes, we're going to outsource the shipping and packing. And mm. that's going to cost me a quarter to do that. But it's like really my only survival option here, you know. Mm. And so, yeah, that's where we're at now. And yeah, I'd also... I mean, so undoing some of those previous strategic moves that had got mm. you into trouble. But I'd also decided during the last two years that, you know, I mentioned like separating as a brand that... I felt like it's a sellable brand. And yes. and I think that in that regard, I wanted to focus on selling it. And I can't focus on selling it or creating, getting it to the point of doing that without, with, with having to manage a team and such a little money in the bank. But I think I was just so actually quite far removed from the intricacies of the business. And in order to sell it, like I just it wasn't feeling like a clean space. Like I need to understand it from beginning to end if I'm in a conversation with a potential buyer. Like, mm. And because I've done the rounds of like what it's like to run it with a team, I understand that. And I don't feel like it's a difficult thing at this point to hire um, a team again. Uh, my systems are so clean now from now running it on my own since January, you know. Yes. And so I understand every single bit of it. And if I can run it on my own, turning the same amount every month just because it's just gotten to that point yeah. and I'm spending three hours a day on it, surely I should be fine to be able to rehire if the right person comes along. You know, yes. the only thing missing from doing everything the way I would do it now is obviously investment money, which I've never taken any investment, Yeah, and the team. And, and then the founder that actually wants to take it to the next level, like that's definitely not me at this point. Yeah. You know, I'm on a different timeline to the timeline I was on when I 
came up with the idea and founded the business, my life has changed profoundly. Like Your personal life? Yeah, my personal life. Yeah. I mean, I was engaged and I'm not engaged anymore. I'm just in a completely different space. I'm now trying to get into the, well, I am in the mental health space. I'm okay. a, a, a neuroemotional coach and I do coaching for entrepreneurs and mothers and people on healing journeys and so I'm able to do that now, but I'm obviously not able to give it my full focus, and that's the direction I'm wanting to go. Mm. So, you know, if I was 10 years younger and didn't have a nine-year-old that I'd like to be present for at some point in his life, totally. I'd be in a different space, you know. I wouldn't be I wouldn't be there. Yeah, no, I get it. I think it's impressive, though, that you've you've continued on and that you've, you've, you've restructured it and uh, the thinking just strikes me as very smart to put it in a packageable structure focused on the value of the brand and the relationships and the and the experience people are having with it, that de- direct connection between you and your customers. Mm. I would imagine is a highly saleable thing. What is the current state of the brand, Ubuntu Baba? I mean, people see it and, you know, it's selling and people love it, etc. But people don't know all this stuff that happened behind the scenes in the restructuring. Like I guess people listening or people buying might be wondering, given this whole history, where are things sitting right now? Where does the brand sit? How well positioned is it? Can it shift into other markets, other areas? Mm. Is it still on top or near the top? Mm. Look, I think from when I launched it to where we are now, there's a big difference in the baby carrier space in South Africa. We didn't have international brands here. Where we now do, we've got some of the big players here. So in the early days, you know, the, the my biggest place is when people go into mom groups and say, what's the best, what's your top 10 baby products I should buy? I've just fallen pregnant. Or I'm looking for a baby carrier. What's your recommendation? That's when we come up and... You know, hmm. five years ago, it would be Ubuntu Baba, Ubuntu Baba, brand one, Ubuntu Baba, brand two, Ubuntu Baba, Ubuntu Baba, brand three, you know, where now it's more of a balance between the international brands and Ubuntu Baba and maybe a few sprinkles of the other smaller South African brands. Okay. And I think this, for me, looking at the entire baby market, it's so interesting because there is, I see so much potential in mom businesses because it's the same thing. Moms create mm. products to solve their own problems. I mean, we sell, we sell now accessory products. One of them is called the Stella Clip. It's an incredible invention by a mom. It is so cool. And like moms, the problem is that we are moms. <laughs> we are also full-time moms and we are fetching our children from school and taking them to school, yes. doing extramurals and yes. making breakfast, lunch, supper and attending to their emotional needs. And now we must also build and scale a business because we made a cute product. Like we can't do that. It's not possible. Something has to give, you know. And I think that's what I also realized is like I can't be Sarah Blakely from Spanx unless I focus on one thing at a time. Like, I can't do it all. Yes. Which is this whole feminist movement of, like, you can do it all and have it all. Yeah. And it's like, well, we need to redefine all, you know. And and that's what the thing is. There's so many amazing small, tiny mom businesses with so much potential, but investors don't look there. I mean, even I have conversations with the bigger retail stockists that stock us, 
and the buyers on the phone to me, you know, and she said to me, the one year on year, another online shop that stocks us, Ubuntu Baba, they never stocked us before. And then the year on year growth was like something crazy, like 94%, yeah. which I didn't even realize because I'm just like selling baby carriers. Yes. And she was like, yeah, this is amazing. I was like, oh, well, don't the investors want to buy it? Like this brand is for sale, you know? <laughs> and she's like, oh, my dear. She's like, you know, they, they're not interested in the baby space. They're interested in the health and beauty space. This is a fraction of... This online shop It's a very well-known online health shop okay. in, yeah. in South Africa. And they're amazing, great brand, but not interested in the baby space. It's too small in inverted commas because they don't realize how big it actually is. Yeah, I mean, 80% of my sales comes from people buying direct on the website. I spend less than 10,000 rand a month on advertising and I do nothing else. That's amazing. It's word of mouth, you know, huh. imagine. <laughs> so would you say the mom is an overlooked customer base? Completely. Really? Completely, yeah. That's so interesting. I mean, a mom is like an FBI agent when she wants to buy a product for her baby. She will research the hell out of it and then she will spend what she needs to spend. Okay. And then there's so many communities that... You know, also being moms, we like recognize the moms that don't, can't afford it. And so there's a lot of donation happening and pre-loved spaces and things like that. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, you know, like if someone had to say to me now, like, what's the vision? You know, imagine like having a space for moms that's on maternity leave or like first year with baby where they can actually go to a shopping mall, shop. And then go to a space where they can just have their boobs out and breastfeed like it should be mm. without having to feel judged or, oh, let me go hide in a bathroom. Imagine there was comfy couches. Imagine there was actually a nice changing room for her to take her baby to that is not just in the little corner on this crappy plastic fold-out thing, mm. you know, where there's like people drying their hands. It's like, then the baby has a nervous breakdown. You know, like imagine there was that <laughs> and there was a coffee shop and there was a little place for the little ones to play and a babysitter. Do you think moms would come to malls more and spend their money more? I don't know. I just yeah? thought of something funny there. There's bloody loud things that dry your hands. Oh, imagine how much undiagnosed yeah. trauma there is from 100%. babies having to listen. <laughs> yeah, I think that might be where some of my snappiness comes <laughs> <laughs> No, there's the, the whole ecosystem of... Um, capitalism does not support mothers having babies. Okay, but they want this stuff, eh? So do you find it easy to, like you've got this existing customer base that loves your product so much because, yeah, as you say, there had to be an FBI agent to find something so that works so well for them in that baby carrier arena. Is, it, is there like a trust there that ex, that's in those existing relationships that allows you, you think, to to expand the business, to sell them other products. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if you look at all the other baby carrier big brands, I mean like Ugo Baby and Tula Baby, the international brands, the one bought the other for like 74 million something dollars or euros. And that was in 2016. And I mean, they sell prams, car seats, all bits and pieces, you know. Yes. There's so many directions you can take. You know, at the end of the day, I think it depends on who you know who the founder is and what their vision is there's there's a hundred ways to do it you know we sell hemp baby carriers so you could concentrate on the sector of hemp and cbd health and that kind of thing or you could do what everybody else does you know which i don't really like to do 
Sure. <laughs> well, yeah. Do you, so the business is up for sale now. You've positioned it as something that's saleable and it's got a strong existing brand, good sales, doesn't cost a lot to get those sales in. So it's a nice platform for someone to else to, to launch from. But in our conversations offline, I've picked up that you're quite specific about who you want to sell to. I love that. <laughs> it's not like, yeah, okay, you give me the money, you can have it. Well, you, you like. I think it's because I've had a lot of conversations. Like, I really think the whole ecosystem is like, okay, let's see your sellable business. Where's your pitch deck? Let me see your monthly management accounts. Blah, blah, blah. How boring. Like, is that really. So you want to see my bottom line so you can see how much money you can get back. I'm a founder. Like, I'm bad at that. I've got a good product with a good track record. I need you to see more than that. Because yes. otherwise, like, okay, I might as well be boring and just carry on doing it myself, you know. Mm. Or I might as well just get investment and, and tick a box. Like, So for me, it's like my my desire or like my best case scenario is that I know there's people out there that see the value in it. And this should be for all, all founders. Like, we shouldn't have to be putting out our monthly management accounts. Like, do you think that I haven't mm -hmm. used my business to put some solution in my home for load shedding? <laughs> I mean, God, like, I've got to be able to stand on my own two feet. And if you're going to not look at the monthly management report and take out a whole lot of 100,000 rands that I've had to use to actually stay alive in one way or another when I couldn't afford to actually pull a salary, then I'm not interested in having a conversation with you because you're just going to irritate me. Mm. And that's kind of where I've gotten to today. I've had lots of conversations and it's not that I don't want to sell to them. It's like it's also that they don't want to buy it because they think it's rubbish because if it's not showing what they want to see in their little category of what a sellable business looks like, then, then you're out. Mm. So I'm talking to the wrong people then. So what are they missing? They're missing the vision for the brand? They are so stuck in their little box of I'm an investor and you're an entrepreneur and this is how it needs to work. Let's put you through an accelerator. Okay. Yes. There's like 100,000 people out there that are looking for opportunities like this to take through an accelerator. I'm not one of them. I'm tired. Oh, uh, yeah. Sure. I've been doing this for nine years. Okay. You know, and there's so many founders like that that get stuck, and that's why businesses fail. There's no one's willing to take it off their hands. No one's willing to look at what's the value of your social media? What's the value of your Instagram channel that you've built that people tag you in stories every single day? Yes. That you don't pay collaborators and influencers to unbox and say, wow, look at this amazing product I yes. got. How do you value like that? Like it's actually real people. Asset. Yeah. Yes. So how do you give that a value? You want to go look at my spreadsheet? Yes. Yes. Well, they don't want to, they want your business. They probably can see the value in that other stuff, but would rather get a deal mm. and, and take uh, a tough couple of years of trading history as, yeah. as an opportunity to get a deal. And then I might as well just sell all my stock on hand and get the same deal that you're giving me and close the business. Thanks. Yeah. What I, what I absolutely love about your quite tough attitude here is besides just mocking all startup advisors <laughs> on the other end of this podcast. Not at all. 95% um, <laughs> of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not all of you guys. Is that you are so passionate, like the passion that you had when you started the business, even though you're on your way out, is still here and you want to sell it to the right person 
at the right price. You know what the valuable part of the business is. You need someone to to see that same thing. Yeah. It's I think also, it's cool. It's not just about me. It's it's about just like, you know, we are where we are. Like when people say, you know, nine out of ten startups fail, why? Can we look at why for a little while? Like, you know, there's so many, we're just doing the same thing over and over again. Where are the schools? What is an entrepreneurship day? Like, unless there's actual, like, real world value to it. Like, we need to, the schools are like a huge issue for me in terms of preparing a country that really needs entrepreneurship. Mm. You know, where are all the invest like, in that space? Like, the investors can also be collaborating with schools and kids in high school, you know. Mm. There's so much creativity there. Yeah, I think entrepreneurship is not a formally taught discipline and it comes later through this accelerator incubator thing. But I think you're absolutely right. I think in South Africa, there's so much potential which is untapped. And yeah, I think there's a lot going on that we don't necessarily know about that that's not that visible. Mm. For sure, but I'm talking mainstream. Mm. Just visible is is one out of ten. Mm. We need nine out of ten. Yeah, why is like why do you study biology at school and not like how to start a business? Um, and and also is entrepreneurship a discipline or is it just human nature until we get it bashed out of us? <laughs> Creativity, it's natural. Yes. You come up with a solution for a problem and then people want it. Yes, that's human nature. If you watch children. Mm. I mean, mm. I watch the little nine-year-olds that come for playdates. They are little entrepreneurs. Mm. Making things. Until they have to go to school <laughs> on Monday. Yes. <laughs> There's that TED Talk by, oh, that very, very famous one where he's dead now, but it's Sir someone or other. Oh, I know exactly which yeah. one. Do schools kill creativity? Yeah. That's the name of it. It's such a fantastic TED Talk. It always inspires me. Not to hate on all schools, not to hate on all investors and all of that. It's just that for me, one out of ten is not good enough of success. That's not good enough. Yeah. And nine out of ten failing has become the conditioned thing. So everyone's like, shit, nine out of ten startups fail. What's the point? Imagine the narrative is like, well, one out of ten succeed. Let's make it two out of ten. Let's make it three out of ten. It does make it very daunting. I've never actually thought about it this way what does it does it have to be this daunting thing that we talk about as you've got a 90 percent chance of failing <laughs> yeah it's pretty high <laughs> <laughs> good luck buddy yeah i mean it's also like a there's this whole conversation about you know you'll, you'll hear investors say it's all about the person right it's all about their character um but yeah i mean um, there may be some characters which are specifically unsuited to entrepreneurialism but i don't think there's any character that is the perfect, the perfect kind of entrepreneur. It's the support and the knowledge and the mm. those those things can be put in place. There are real building blocks there, mm. and yeah, I think it's emerging with venture builders, accelerators, venture capitalists that are starting to build businesses directly with entrepreneurs. There is a mm. wave going on there, and also entrepreneurs aren't, in my experience, natural leaders, and that's where the problem lies. Is that you're an entrepreneur, you're a creative, you create something, and then all of a sudden now you must know how to how to hire, manage a team, do mm. all of that, mm. understand the financial aspect of it. And that's where things get lost because an entrepreneur, I mean, is not a natural leader at the end of the day. Mm. They're just like a usually the creative person, you know. Mm. They can see a vision and they're a little bit more like artsy. 
not always, but like a lot of the time. And so there's just like, there's so many facets to what makes a good entrepreneur, you know. Mm. And I think character is definitely one of them, like the natural character. But yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it all comes up to how, where we are at as humans in our own growth journey, because, you know, we've all got a lot of stuff to deal with from childhood. And that, like I always say, like your as an entrepreneur, your business is going to be such a reflection of your inner world creates your outer world wherever you are, like that is like so true because you have to, you've got to take ownership of that. Yes. And yeah, that that personal growth side of it is also not invested in enough for entrepreneurs. You know, there's amazing, I mean, I'm very much out of touch, so I speak out of turn. I'm very out of touch with the entrepreneurial ecosystem. You know, I'm, I'm friends with Fred from Heavy Chef and I, I'm involved there to some degree. But and, and that's so positive and I love what he's doing, but I know nothing else. So there could be amazing things happening. But all I know is that what the narrative is in the media is that it's mostly failures in, in starting a business. You do, you're doomed to fail. It's yes. kind of the, the word on the street, you know. And people are scared to leave their careers and their jobs because they've got this idea. But they're like, yeah, but what's the chances? I'm 40 years old now. Nine out of 10 fail. I mean, please, who's going to invest in this? Well, there are a couple of, actually, there, there's there's a lot of data emerging that people in their 40s and 50s are far more backable entrepreneurs. Mm. than They've had their nervous breakdown. Yeah, they're, <laughs> yeah, they're better connected. There's <laughs> probably a bit of capital, et cetera. <laughs> yeah, but it's interesting. So they're still having entrepreneurs. I think it might be a, something that investors are still overcoming psychologically, but mm. the data is there. So the guys Definitely. in their 40s and 50s are, are more backable, which mm. is, yeah. Which is interesting. But more grounded, I suppose. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Fallen off the boat a few times now. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> they can swim. I've loved this conversation very much and I don't really have any more questions <laughs> to ask you. I have a compliment to pay you. This is your, I've been studying the science of character quite a lot, fascinated by it just as a hobby but also linking it to entrepreneurialism a lot of the time. One of the things that comes up is authenticity. So this particular definition of it in terms of the science of character is authenticity not in the sense that you never lie, but authenticity in the sense that who you are inside is who you present on the outside. So you live your own internal truth and you certainly seem to be and it's the kind of a thing you know it when you see it. You certainly seem to be a person like that. Um, so it's easy to relate to you. Thanks, man. Thank you for telling Feel your story. I do. Good means I'm faking it brilliantly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So thank you very much for coming and sharing your story with me today. Thanks, Lamont. Thanks for all the lovely questions and talking points. Mm.